Welcome to the Midlife Men podcast with me, Philip Briscoe. In this episode, we're looking at what it's like to grow up in a home where you're witnessing domestic violence and the impact that can have on you, not just as a child, but also as an adult. I'm joined by the writer, speaker and journalist Tom Mitchelson, who's written a memoir based on his experiences called Don't Ask Me About My Dad, published by HarperCollins, about domestic abuse, how he was later groomed by a trusted adult, but crucially about his journey to peace. Hi, Tom. You wrote a book called Don't Ask Me About My Dad, selling very well. It still tells the story of your childhood through to adulthood and principally the impact that your dad had on yourself and your family and your siblings. And um, I wonder if we could start by, you know, you could tell us why you decided to write the book. Well, I think that I was always a writer and that's what I did professionally with some success and then other times not. And I was a journalist and then I was a joke writer as well. So I like telling stories and that was kind of what I did and that's what interested me. And my own upbringing, I mean, just to sort of give you, you know, the, the, the background of it, my dad was a very violent man, violent towards my mum. And I had triplet sisters. He was also violent to him. And he kind of um, led a reign of terror, really, over the house. And I think the consequence was, although I knew all that had happened, as a kid, I didn't tell anyone because it would have been, you know, I'd have been betraying my dad in some ways or shame. I felt a bit of shame, didn't talk about it. It was definitely something that the whole family kept a secret. And I kept that all locked away for 40 years and I think that it was a very natural when I started to think back to it and started to confront some of those things from the past writing about it seemed a, a, the, the, the most natural thing to do for me and also I, I sort of remember thinking well hang on I'm always sitting here thinking of stories I could write this actually seems to be the best story that I've got because like anything in life, it's just real and you, it's like you, you can't make it up because there's too many twists and turns and strange recurrent themes that showed me it was a, it was a story that really I had to write and that was, the, that was the best way into it for me and, and a way of dealing with some of those difficult things from the past to confront them through writing. And was there a trigger? Was there a particular trigger that, that uh, caused you to, you know, to, to, to take it on? I think that there... There was two triggers. Well, my dad died and I had a very complicated relationship with him. All growing up, you know, as a kid, you want to be with your dad when you're three years old, four years old. And he was a charismatic, charming man. He could be a lot of fun. So I really wanted that relationship. But he had this other side, which was, you know, horrific. And he was a monster. And I, I never, I couldn't really understand that as a child. So I just sort of looked to try and maintain that relationship. And I kind of, because I never really looked at it, I kept that relationship with my dad all the way into adulthood. So I suppose my dad dying was a kind of semi-trigger in a way because I was able to look at that relationship a bit more objectively without having him around. And the other trigger was that I looked at my son one day uh, when he was about four years old, and that's when I had my first memories and remembered being growing up in this violent house. And that's kind of, um, so, so when I looked at my son, I kind of started to think that what if he had seen the things that I had seen, what if what had happened had happened to him? 
And, you know, I thought it would break him in many ways. And I wondered if perhaps the things that had happened to me had broken me in some way. Can you elaborate a bit more on what it was that your, you know, your father was doing? You know, what was it like as a four-year-old growing up in the house? What were you experiencing? So many days would be kind of peaceful. Uh, we'd, you know, watch a film together, my dad and I, play a game of chess, just sort of normal activities that a family might. But then he would have a sort of switch that would turn and you never quite knew what it would be. It could be totally insignificant to anyone else. And uh, he would be, geez, just become a madman and he would hit, punch, kick my mum. I know that he raped her too, drag her down the hair by a street while the neighbours watched. Police were called lots of times. And he had a real control over my mum. And we would go, we were in and out of refuges as well. So sometimes we got away. He had a way of getting my mum back. And, and obviously living like that, I mean, you're just on eggshells the whole time and you never know. So even when there's peace, it's not really peace because you're thinking what's going to happen next. And it was totally and utterly devastating because the kind of fury that my father had, I've never seen anything like it in my life to this day. So it was a bit like a war zone. Really, I mean, it, it, you know, you know, not the bombs, but it felt to me like living in a war zone because you just there's never a moment of this is fine, this is okay. So you take all that tension. That tension is always there. Did you know what normal? Oh no, use normal in a, you know, not a, a particularly traditional way. But did you know what normal was? What your, you know, did you think your other friends were experiencing this? Did you think it was different, or did you not question that as a as a small child? It's hard to remember what you how you thought as a child exactly but uh, i i knew that other people didn't have to contend with that at home i'm pretty sure that because i, I was aware of wanting to keep it a secret in the embarrassment of having the police call because the last thing i wanted to sort of tell people what did you do you know if you have to write an essay how was your weekend <laughs> you know like that was not what i was going to write about and i think that this was the 80s if you turned on the TV, EastEnders was on, where people were screaming and shouting and punching each other. Our neighbours next door would have screaming rows too. And I suppose because neighbours were aware of it, but yet maybe they called the police sometimes but didn't really do anything, I just kind of thought that, well, everyone sticks their... Everyone seemed to stick their head in the sands about it. And because my mum put up with it, you know, it was very, very difficult for her. I guess I didn't really look at it that way as a kid. I just thought, this is my dad. I wish there was a way that I could stop him doing this, but this is life and you have to get on with it. And when these moments happen, me as a seven or eight year old or whatever I was at the time, had to find the best way of managing it. So I spent a lot of time trying to control, calm him down, manage him, standing in the way of my parents to try and, and that, that's yeah. a huge obligation on a small child and, and especially one to take on themselves yeah but there was you know of course I didn't realize that at the time and I don't think anyone was really I don't think my mum was really aware of it because it was just for her it was just like survive you're in a survival mode you get one you know you're not thinking of escaping because you're thinking how do I get through this day and you know keep alive you know that was I think what my mum thought and for me it was just 
I had to try and protect my mum. I looked at myself as a sort of bodyguard, but I was fairly useless at the job because I was so young. And, um, you know, that's all that, that I could do to, to, to try and do my best to manage my dad's moods and to try and be awake so that when, you know, when these arguments would be at night or the violence would be at night, so that I could have some sort of small control in it or, or you know. And despite, so despite, you know, living this environment, this kind of war zone, you were still trying to find good in your dad. You were still loyal, is that right? I mean, how, how did you, was that because you were, you were still hoping that you'd have a, you know, a, a normal relationship with your father and he would, you know, behave as perhaps you wanted him to? Were you constantly, you know, were you, were you optimistic that that would, that would happen? I don't think I looked at it like that then. I, I just think I longed for those moments of tranquility, you know, where it just seemed like everything, there was no violence, there was no fighting. My dad was in a good mood. You know, that's what I was looking for. And I guess there was hope there that, you know, maybe this will stop eventually. Maybe, you know, sometimes it might be a week or two weeks without any incident and, and, and you think, well, maybe it could go longer than that. But I'm not sure if you think about it as a kid like that. I didn't, couldn't break it down. He was just, this was my life. This was the man that we lived with. Let's try and survive it. And I think it didn't go beyond that. And, and then I think I got trapped later in life in that thought process. You know, I never looked back at it and thought, I could see stories on the news about domestic violence and horrific things happening and think, God, that's uh, terrible without really relating it to the fact that I had been there myself. I knew it had happened. If I talked to my mum about it, we would say, wasn't that an awful time? I'm so pleased we're out of it. And our conversations wouldn't really go beyond that, the effects of it, what it actually meant. So I sort of got trapped in that thought process and I couldn't break it until I think, you know, as I said, he, he died and that kind of broke something. And, and then having my son slowly allowed me to think well what does it do to a child <laughs> and you know is the you know because you don't know the way that you are is any different from the way that anyone else is but I was a I was a tense person and I had a lot of nervous energy and I was ready for the world to explode at any moment around me any situation and I had to be ready to fight and that's how I lived my life so this kind of tension that I live with all the time. But then I was also very keen to protect myself from anyone asking questions about my past. And I think because I didn't really want people to know me properly, because there was sort of this darkness inside that I hadn't worked out myself. So until I work it out, you know, you're not going to have a look at it yourself. So then I put on an act. I mean, like... I think this is what loads of people do. We all, might, might all do it to some extent, but I just became this person that would tell stories, good at parties, try, you know, I wanted to be really charming, smooth. And so when I was out, I was just performing. And then I'd come home and I'd be like, oh, I isn't it? And I think that, that, was the, that was the consequence on me. And until I looked at it, I couldn't untangle, unwind any of that mess. Did you try and understand, or do you know why your dad behaved the way he did? Do you know anything to do with his, his own background or, or upbringing? Have, have you ever tried to decipher that? Yeah, I mean, as much as is possible, 
I know that he came from a violent home himself. His dad was violent with his mum, so he learnt that behaviour firsthand from firsthand experiences. And I think from things that he said himself, I think his mum was particularly cruel to him with punishments. And I think he had a lot of anger about that. You know, just hit, 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 hitting him with sticks or whatever, or kind of humiliation, really. I think he was made to wear some sort of sack, potato sack or something. And I think he was just a very, very angry man. So I think he saw it firsthand, but I think he felt humiliated as a, as a child and growing up. And he was intent on taking it out on people on sort of, he was a very violent man. He had lots of fights uh, growing up. And so I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, that he, he, he saw it firsthand and, 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 uh, and then sadly repeated that behavior. And do you think, and I know, I know we've discussed this before, but do you think, That was to do with the time, you know, the time that he grew up in, you know, post-war, 60s, 70s, you know, or do you think it was just something that would have happened anyway? You know, some people just have that sort of, you know, DNA that they they can't cope with stress and and it comes out as as violence and aggression. I mean, I I certainly, you know, you only have to look at lockdown and all the calls to domestic abuse hotlines to realise it's very much real now. Uh, just as it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago. I think it's always happened and sadly always will until these things are much more in the public consciousness and we can talk about them and call them out. And that's that's the answer and eventually making people more aware, teaching the police how to deal with these things. So it, certainly back when he was growing up in the 50s, um, I, mean, I think he had a lot of traumatized people from the Second World War, um, who may well have used violence as a way of kind of, um, of an, as an outlet for some of that trauma. And I think there was an understanding that, uh, that uh, an English man's home was his castle. So what happened in there was his business. There's a kind of, um, sexist attitude to it. I doubt the police would have been particularly interested. I know that even in the 80s, when the police came to our house, it was always viewed as a, a breach of the peace. There's been a big breach of the peace rather than an assault. And the police would usually just go away. They'd see they, everything okay. And they'd detect maybe personally, they would be able to see that there was some sort of tension in the air. But they'd just have a word with my dad and they'd consider it job done. And the police didn't have training in those situations to realise, well, maybe the woman's not going to speak up in front of them. So, so I think that um, things are getting slowly better as we kind of educate ourselves. But um, I think it's just a problem that persists and, and carries on to whatever the, whatever the generation. So since you've written the book, you've had people you know, read it and, and feed back to you. And what sort of response have you, have you had? Have you found that there are... Lots of other people out there who've who've uh, suffered some sort of kind of tra- traumatic childhood. It's incredible. I mean, it tends to be that the people who have got in contact with me, uh, who got in contact with me about the book, want to tell me their own story that is either similar or has echoes for their, you know, has echoes uh, in my story. But really, it's the people that I know who have read the book, and I would say almost half of them have had some experience of domestic violence. And that shook me because people just wrote to me saying, well, you know, who I knew saying I had something similar. 
I grew up like this. Maybe it was worse. Maybe it was, you know, a one-off incident, but a deeply affecting incident. And, and it just shows me how widespread this thing is. I mean, it's incredible. Every, everyone's got some sort of, it seems to me, some sort of, you know, difficulty from their past that kind of haunts them in some way. And, and they're kind of eager. I never knew this before because I've never involved myself in sort of big emotional conversations with people in that way. Or I wouldn't really listen to it because I kind of couldn't really handle other people's pain without being able to handle my own. And it's only when I've sort of got a grip on my own difficulties from the past that I've been able to understand other people. So basically there are a lot of people walking around carrying scars of their childhood and whether they've faced up to that or whether it's just like a you know, an ongoing piece of baggage. But but for you, you've written a book. How has that helped you manage what happened to you in the past? It is very much like a if you have painful, hard things that have happened to you in your past, it's very much like an open wound, a physical wound, until you begin to dress it. And if you don't dress it, it leaks out in in ways, in, in your behaviour, in your attitude to things. And that was certainly the case with me. And I see it now clearly in other people in a way that I couldn't before. We were all products of our childhood, aren't we? I mean, that's what... And when you have a disturbing childhood, and that's the thing about childhood, it's impossible to untangle these things as you go along without assistance or without help. So for me, writing the book, I was able to spend time in those painful places and write and think about, not, not just, well, this happened and that happened, but what did that actually feel like? What did it mean? What were the consequences? And, and all those questions were incredibly useful in untangling the pain of the past and what it all meant. So do you, it's a difficult question, but do you have, you know, what advice would you give somebody who is carrying around, you know, a lot of, um, you know, toxic, you know, memories that, that still impact them, even as an adult in their 40s, 50s? What advice would you give them based on your experience? I mean, not everybody's going to write a book, but what advice would you give I think I would always be really careful about giving advice <laughs> about what people should do about their own traumatic pasts. But I know that if, if you sort of block it out, it, it remains a bleeding wound. And the, the, I'm sure that the only way is to understand the things that have happened and slowly come to accept them. And to do that, I think you have to think as deeply as you can about them in a hard way. And it's always frightening because it's, it hurts physically to think back to those times. I couldn't think back to my childhood. There were some images of me sitting on the stairs as a seven-year-old kid listening to the arguments. That's how I think of myself as a kid, my legs shaking, sort of out of control. And I couldn't think about that moment without wanting to cry, wanting to, and it just, so I would, not go back there because I mean, you know, why? And it was just too different, hard and painful. It felt, I felt it. But when I was able to write about it, start to think what it meant, how I felt on those stairs, listening to that, what, what did I need as a kid? Should I have been there in the first place? When I could answer those questions, even if they were not particularly pleasant answers, no, I shouldn't have been there. I was alone, you know. Understanding that, facing that, realizing that, and then just accepting it. And that's what I had to do with my dad, really. 
Accept the good. There was some good in him, like everyone. We're not all one thing. And accept the bad. And it happened. The bad stuff happened. And it was shit. And it just, that's what it was. But that, looking at it and examining the past in that way for me, brought peace. Because it was, otherwise it was just some dark shadow. That seven-year-old boy that you talked about, you know, you wanted to go and pick him up and, and take him away and save him. Do you feel in a way that through writing the book, you, you've done that a bit? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I used to have this sort of thought of someone, like a sort of proper dad, rescuing me. And I kind of realised that I ha- there was no proper dad that was going to come. That's the truth. And actually, I had to rescue myself because I had to go and sort it out, work out that pain. And yeah, and then I felt like I did kind of connect with that little boy that I was. And I did kind of go back to him somehow. I don't know if this makes sense, but I, I kind of felt like it was almost like an image in my head of me as a little boy sitting on the stairs, getting picked up and rescued. And actually, <laughs> I was the one there. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I was the one holding that little boy. It makes me very emotional even now to, because it's sort of the singularly most impactful thing, really, that you kind of rescue yourself because you have to. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are lots of people who, you know, can relate to that. And now, of course, you've got your son. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't need rescuing. No, <laughs> he's no, got you. And it's, and it's beautiful. And I think that you kind of, I found a, a way of kind of, um, you know, really repairing myself through my son in some ways by being the dad that I didn't have. And, um, you know, I kind of knew what he needed because it was what I hadn't had. And through that relationship with him, and he's eight years old now, I do feel I've been able to give him that sort of, you know, all the things that you want as a child. And that's been incredibly restorative to me. And, and it's been wonderful to be able to give that. Well, I think anyone that's, anyone that's experienced similar sort of childhood experiences, I think reading your book is it's articulating something which perhaps some people have never seen written down or even heard before. And it's quite unique, I think, in terms of the way that it kind of addresses something which people carry around with them for years. And, you know, just because you're 40 or 50 or 60, it doesn't make it any better. And I think, as you said yourself, you know, you need to dress the wound yeah. because it doesn't heal otherwise. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Midlife Med. You can buy Tom's book, Don't Ask Me About My Dad, via Linktree. Just go to linktree.com slash Tom Mitchelson. If you have any feedback for me or you're interested in sharing your story, either contact me on Twitter at MidlifeMen or email me at midlifemen01 at gmail.com. Thank you.